Before we begin our study, I want to uh, give a quick shout out to the uh, event we're going to have in just a little bit over a month, this event called Generations, where four different generations from our church, beginning with middle school and high school students and all the way through uh, the end of the spectrum, really, uh, we, we're going to be gathering together on one night, March the 3rd, and uh, we're going to have some intergenerational conversation and learn from each other. I'm excited about that aspect. But really, the purpose of this event is to uh, challenge every one of us at the different ages and stages we are in life to leverage where we're at and to make sure that we use our life in a way that really matters. And so we're going to be talking about how to strategically invest our lives in ways that matter, whether you're a student or early, uh, early career, early family, all the way through retired folks. We want to talk about how to use those different ages and stages in ways that will make a difference for eternity. So uh, that's going to be a great evening, a lot of intergenerational learning. But the other thing that uh, will, is going to, the, one of the key values to this event is the book that you're going to read beforehand. So you have a book that you need to pick up uh, to, in order to come to the event, and depending on where you're at in life, that's going to determine which book you're going to pick up. Those books are for sale in the foyer, and this is the last day. I think this is the last day we're going to have them out. So after today, you're going to have to hunt us down. If you're like, I need that book, I decided I'm coming. Uh, after today, you're going to have to hunt us down. So this is the last opportunity we're going to have them out there in the foyer. And you really need to get them soon because you need to... Uh, you need to read this book before you come. So it'll give you the month of February to read and reflect, and then we'll come together on Friday night, March the 3rd. So that's what those books are doing out there in the foyer, and that's what I'd encourage you to, to grab um, before, the, before the morning is over. Well, we're in a study that we've called God's Church, uh, Your Family. And the purpose of this study is to remind us that God has familified us, that when we turn to Jesus, we not only have our sins forgiven, our relationship with God repaired, we're also put into a family with brothers and sisters in this thing called the church. And that the actual working out of that family is in the local church. This gathering's just like this. And uh, that's what we've been talking about. Last week, you got an assignment to pray on a regular basis, to pray every day for an opportunity to show love to someone in this faith family. I don't know if you've had your opportunity yet. And I'll tell you what my experience has been. I've been praying, prayed uh, regularly for this, and had some opportunities to show love, but nothing that really seemed like it was the assignment that God wanted for me, you know, nothing that really felt like, okay, this is, this is what this prayer has been about. So I'm still in the process of praying in that way, and I'd encourage you, if you've been praying, maybe you had an opportunity to do that, maybe you haven't yet, keep praying, and God's going to bring an opportunity in front of you, an opportunity for you to show love to another person in this faith family. If, you, uh, if this is new and you haven't been part of this conversation yet, I encourage you to find some messages online, two of them so far, and uh, get caught up because each Sunday is an important installment. And this morning we're going to begin another important installment as we continue to add to this idea that God has called uh, those who follow him, he's put us in a faith family, and he, ex- he wants us to live out love in that faith family. So... Um, You've heard the Chinese blessing, right? Everyone's heard this Chinese blessing. It's a Chinese New Year this weekend. The Chinese blessing is, and may you live in interesting times. Everyone's heard that. Well, by that standard, I would say that we are a pretty blessed people today. You know, uh, because as citizens of the world in the early 21st century, these are interesting times. As 
Americans in January 2017, these are interesting times, as Jesus followers in an increasingly challenging postmodern environment. These are interesting times. Because uh, for Jesus followers, the postmodern culture that we live in, this highly combative, highly cynical environment, uh, it's becoming harder and harder for Jesus followers to get our message out in a way that doesn't become distorted by the time it gets to the folks that we want to receive it. Uh, Because our culture is cynical and uh, at best indifferent. I mean, our culture is at best indifferent to our message today. And uh, to say that it's indifferent is putting as positive a spin on it as possible. I mean, really, our culture is negative about our message. They're downright cynical and disdainful and mocking and, in some cases, intolerant of people who follow Jesus. Christian groups on college campuses are uh, facing expulsion because of their radical views on campus. Uh, Military chaplains are being reassigned because of their adherence to historic Christian doctrines. Many people believe that Christianity is just another form of hate speech. And that's our country, and it's not just our country, it's also true right here in this valley. There was a time when Walla Walla was insulated from much of uh, what's happening around the country. But thanks to increased mobility, increased connectivity, that's not true anymore. When I came to Walla Walla, Walla Walla seemed like a kind of isolated place. It didn't necessarily uh, ebb and flow with everything was happening uh, all around the country. But uh, now, I mean, we're still geographically isolated. That hasn't changed, but we're not culturally isolated anymore. We're not culturally isolated. Uh, We reflect the same tensions that dominate our culture including this indifference to Christianity at best, and in some cases, actual hostility, intolerance to people of faith. And here's the problem with that. The biggest problem with that is not because it uh, threatens you and me. That's not the biggest problem. That might be the first thing you think about, but that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem with that is we want our culture to listen to us. We want... Uh, to have influence in our culture. Because we believe that we have something that the rest of our country needs. We have something that we believe can change someone's quality of life now and destiny of their lives for eternity. And that is a repaired relationship with God that's only possible through His Son Jesus. So we want people to listen to us. We want to have credibility and influence in our culture. We want people to pay attention to us, but why should they? Really, why should they? Because we believe some pretty crazy kinds of things. We believe that uh, there's a God, first of all, that stop right there, there's a God, and we take him seriously. Now, most Americans actually do believe there is a God, but not enough to really take it seriously as a something to live according to. You know, so we believe there is a God who actually uh, became a man. And uh, we hold to unpopular ideas like the unchanging nature of truth, the idea that how we conduct ourselves matters, the idea that how we behave is important, how we treat other people 
actually matters. We believe that uh, how we conduct ourselves sexually is an important thing. That uh, we believe that it's, it's important how we properly express gender and, and sexuality. And to some people, this is weird. And to other people, this isn't just weird, it is dangerous. We're not just weird people, we're dangerous people. And more and more, that's the environment that we're called to minister in. And I believe that more and more, that's going to become a reality more and more, the, the kind of environment that we will face in increasing, uh, in increasing ways. So it sounds like an impossible task if our job is to help engage with people who think that we are kind of nutty, to engage with them and actually win them over to an, a new way of thinking and living. It sounds like an impossible task. In some ways, our world is becoming more and more like the world of the first few centuries of the early church. I have a book uh, that is uh, pretty much brand new. It's, it's called Destroyer of the Gods. Destroyer of the Gods is by a man named Larry Hurtado. And Larry Hurtado is a historian, and his specialty is the early Christianity uh, not just early Christianity, but the uh, early the Roman culture in the in in the times when Jesus lived and Christianity was born. And he's an academic and a professor, and has done just a lot of research and writing about this subject. And this book is basically about how people in the one to three hundreds A.D. viewed Christianity. How, how people viewed Christianity, this weird movement that grew from just a few dozen followers in the beginning into several million followers over just a couple of hundred years, which was lightning fast in those days. And people viewed Christianity, uh, people viewed Christians as very strange people. They were very strange. We're talking about how Romans viewed Christians, how Jewish people viewed these Christians. They viewed them as really strange people. For one thing, they were basically atheists. I mean, these Christians only believed in one God. One God. I mean, you might as well call them atheists if you're just going to believe in one God in the days uh, that Jesus lived. Not only did they just believe in one God, they practiced a ceremony that sounds a lot like cannibalism, if you ask me. They're weird people. And they enforced some pretty hardcore rules. If, if you're a Christian, you follow some pretty hardcore rules. Like the rule that says, if you're a married man, you're not supposed to have sex with anyone but your wife. Can you believe that because every Roman man knows that you are entitled as a Roman man to sex with your wife, sex with your slaves. That's part of why you have slaves. They don't just cook for you. They don't just clean your house and do your work for you. One of the reasons you have slaves is so that you can have sex with them. And, and, and not only do you have sex with your wife, you can have sex with your slaves, and you can have sex with, you go out and have sex with prostitutes. That's what being a Roman man is all about. Part of that sex with prostitutes is your religion. So it's like, hey, baby, I'm going to church. I'll be back in a few minutes, you know. 
That was part of just being a religious person. And Christians said, no. You're really, if you're a married man, you're really only supposed to have sex with your wife. And by the way, women were, of course, only supposed to have sex with their husbands. Of course. But men, only with their wives? These Christians practiced some pretty hard, core ways of living. But somehow, these weird Christians grew from a few dozen followers to millions within just a couple of centuries, to six million by some estimates, and by some estimates even more in the first three centuries. There were dozens, probably hundreds of religions during the days of the early church. Dozens, if not hundreds, of religions. But there are only two that survived to today, from that day. One is Christianity, and one is Judaism. They're the only two faiths that still exist today among the dozens, maybe hundreds of faiths and religions that were practiced in that day. So here's the question that we need to ask. How did a bunch of weird people win their world to Jesus? What made pagan Romans listen to weird Christians? We ask that question, and that's the question that he answers in this book. And we ask that question because we want to know the same thing about our valley. What's going to make pagan Walla Wallens, people who are just indifferent at best to things of, uh, that have to do with the God of the universe. What's going to make them listen to us? Well, there's really one glimmer of hope that we have. There's one glimmer of hope, one ray of light that is a possible opening for us in this valley. And that is that people today still like Jesus. They may not like Christians and they may not like Christianity, but they still like Jesus. People today still have a positive view of Jesus. And if somehow the church could live in a way that when people look at us, they actually saw Jesus. Crazy idea, I know. But if somehow people could look at us and somehow see in us Jesus, then I think that's the one possible opening that we have into the culture that we live in. That might just be enough to get people's attention. And what I want to say this morning is it is possible. It's not easy, but it is possible for us to live in such a way that when people look at us, they see Jesus. But it will only happen one way. And it's the way that Jesus himself said it would happen. So I'd like for you to take your Bibles. We're going to, be, we're going to start in one place and camp in another place. Okay, So we're going to start in John chapter 13. We've been in this chapter a couple of times already. We're going to be in it a couple more times before our study is out. But we're at John chapter 13. We're just going to begin there. I want you to see Jesus' words for yourself in your Bible or on your phone. Where Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, he's with his 12 disciples, and then it's only 11 because Judas leaves to betray him. And Jesus, in chapters 13 through 17, is passing on his final words. It's hours before he's going to be put to death. So he's passing on final words and and important themes. And one of the things he says, we've read it a couple times already, and you're already familiar with it. John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says to his disciples, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, 
so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, we've already seen this passage. We've talked about this. We, we have reflected on it at some length last Sunday. But what I want you to see now is, is another uh, passage written by the same guy. So this is John. This is in the Gospel of John, right? John was one of Jesus' closest followers. Well, he also wrote a letter, uh, several letters, named after him, and one of those is 1 John. So we're going to spend more time in 1 John, so why don't you open your Bibles now to 1 John. We'll keep this passage up here on one side, where Jesus says, I want you to love each other, and this is how people will know you're my disciples. Now, in 1 John, I want us to read, uh, we're going to look at several different places, so you can just keep your Bible open there throughout the morning, but we're going to begin by reading 1 John uh, in, in chapter 4, and here's something that I learned studying this, and I didn't, didn't really know this before, that some scholars think that 1 John is actually an exposition of Jesus' conversation with the disciples in the upper room, that the themes that Jesus talks about in John 13 through 17, that First John, John is actually a reflection on those same themes, and you can kind of see that in the passage that we're going to study this morning. So 1 John Chapter 4, I want you to notice how similar this is to what Jesus just said the night that he was betrayed, beginning in verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God, loved, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but... If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Now, really both of these passages say the same thing. Jesus, uh, Jesus and John overlap here. Notice how similar they are. On, on the one hand, you have uh, Jesus say this, uh, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is how people will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. And look at what John says. He says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. Same kind of idea that, that, that when, when we love each other, People can see God in us. When we love each other, people will know that we are Jesus' followers. The idea is that God shows up. No one's seen God directly, but they can see him indirectly through the way that Jesus' followers interact with each other. Such an important, powerful truth. And you can think of it like this. We will either make Jesus obvious or obscure to the people in this valley by how we relate to each other. You could put it like this. If you want to look like Jesus, if we want to look like Jesus, then we have to love like Jesus. If we want our valley to look at us and say, those people look like that guy I'd like to know more about, if we want people to look at us and think that, then we have to love like Jesus. Now, that's the standard. We talked about that standard last Sunday when, we, when Jesus says, listen, I'm giving you a new command, and this new command that you love each other as I have loved you. That's the new standard. We'll see it here. Uh, 
Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And remember that this statement, as I have loved you, is sandwiched between Jesus washing the disciples' feet and him dying on the cross. So, so that's the standard by which Jesus has loved us, and that's the standard by which we're to love each other. Somewhere between washing each other's feet and dying for each other, that's how much we should love each other. And John says a very similar thing. Dear friends, since God so loved us, how much did God love us? He loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. You see that the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, is still the the perfect measure. It's still the the, uh, model by which we're, the model that we're supposed to follow in loving each other. And what Jesus says and what John reiterates for us is that if, if, if we want to look like Jesus, if we want to have people see us and get a glimpse of, of God and his grace and his beauty, Jesus in his winsomeness and his power, then we have to love like Jesus. By this, all people will know that we are his followers. And this is true of you, of you. As an individual, it's true for you. So I want you to think about this. If you want the people in your path, you like you want to be salt and light, if you want the people in your path to look at you and see Jesus, if you want to look like Jesus to the people in your path, you know how you're going to do it? By loving like Jesus. You can have a squeaky clean life and not look like Jesus. You can be an aggressive apologist for truth. You can know your Bible from Genesis to maps. But if you don't love, you don't look like Jesus. What looks like Jesus is when you show patient, sacrificial love for other people. That's what looks like Jesus. And here's... uh, this extends. If you want people, if you want to look like Jesus, you've got to love like Jesus. That's not just true in real life. That is also true in virtual life. So I'm going to go off the reservation here for a couple minutes, and I'm going to uh, uh, step into that treacherous part of the Venn diagram where politics and social media overlap. That's where we're going for the next few minutes. Okay? Can you go there with me? If you want to look like Jesus, you got to love like Jesus. This extends to how we interact with each other online. It extends to how we act and interact with each other, interact with unbelievers. It extends to how we interact with each other in the subject of politics. And the political climate today is, I mean, I'm not that old, but I've never seen it like this before. I've never seen everywhere I go, that's what people are talking about. Everywhere I go, that's what people are talking about. Every day at the Y, in the locker room. That's what these old guys are talking about. They're not talking about their knees anymore. You know, <laughs> they're just talking about, they're talking about politics. And one guy who is just a really brash, mouthy guy, uh, was, uh, he actually apologized. I heard him, overheard him apologizing to some other people in the locker room. This guy who's always just mouthy, mouthy, saying, you know, yesterday I kind of, I went a little too far. It's so interesting that our climate is so polarized. And what we have to be careful of in this very electric environment 
is that we continue to let people see Jesus by the way that we love. Now, I'm not talking about whether you are for or against anything. I'm talking about how you deal with that, how you communicate that. I saw something. I'm going to share it with you here in just a second. So I, uh, I have a Twitter account, and I use it, and I send stuff out, and I observe stuff. So yesterday, I was on my account and kind of flipping through things, and I came across this transaction. That's just so amazing. I'm going to share it with you. So it starts with a guy named Jake Tapper. How many of you know who Jake Tapper is? A few of you? Okay, he's a CNN news anchor. So this is Jake Tapper. Tiny little picture, but it's Twitter. So Twitter, if you don't know, it's a social forum where it's not Facebook, you got big long posts, it's really just 140 characters and you gotta, you gotta get it, you gotta fit it all in. So, you know, you gotta leave stuff out and there's no context. So it's really great for communicating political issues. And, uh, so, Jake Tapper. Now, a couple of things you need to know about Jake Tapper, in my opinion. Now, I told you, I'm going in this Venn diagram, social media, politics, I will offend someone. You'll be like, he thinks Jake Tapper's okay? I have not. I'm not, I'm not a CNN connoisseur. Well, on what news station does he listen to? Well, I'm going to tell you that, you know. I mean, everything, everyone. So, I listen to NPR. How about that? Uh, so, Jake Tapper, he's a CNN anchor. And as far as I can tell, I followed him on Twitter for quite a while. And he seems pretty even-handed. He's a, he's, he seems like a legit guy. You know, I'm not saying yeah or nay, but uh, he's just a news anchor. And uh, the other thing to know about him is he's Jewish, all right? So he's a Jewish news anchor and uh, takes his faith pretty seriously, as far as I could tell, you know. And uh, so here's what he tweeted yesterday. Uh, Proverbs 12.22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Now, that's kind of a weird thing for him to tweet, because I've never seen him tweet a Bible verse before. But interesting, and I don't even know what the context was. I do not even know. This was the first tweet. It probably, I mean, it has, no doubt, political overtones somewhere. But this is what he says. Uh, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. And someone responds to him. Her name is Sandy. And she says, liberals using the Bible now? Have you read the Bible, Jake? Remember, he's Jewish. He's been bar mitzvahed. He replies, I'm A, I'm not a liberal. B, I guarantee you I've studied the Bible much more than you have, and not in English. <laughs> and she says, More than I have, how can you make such a claim? And he says, by your rude behavior. Now I say, one for Jake Tapper. (laughs) Because people will see Jesus not by our cleverness, not by our snarkiness, not by our biting political commentary, or our strong lines in the sand, they're going to see Jesus by how we love people. And if we don't love, 
then the world just turns that knob off. So the burden on us in all of our interactions is to live love. If we want to look like Jesus, we've got to learn to love like Jesus. We've got to love like Jesus. You as an individual, you've got to restrain yourself when you want to let someone have it. And we've got to restrain ourselves as a faith family and treat each other with grace and with love. Because if we don't love like Jesus, we're not going to look like Jesus. It's true, it's true in every faith family. It's true in every local church. And so if we as a faith family want people to look at us and see Jesus, then we as a faith family need to love like Jesus. If we want to look like Jesus to the people in this valley, then we have to leverage the one thing that they're open to, Jesus, and somehow look like him in the way that we relate to each other. We need to build a strong culture of sacrificial, gracious, patient love if we want our valley to pay attention to us. And it's not an easy love. John tells us that. So we're going to look at, look at some of the things that John says. We're going to flip around between chapters 3 and 4 over the next couple of minutes. We're just going to see some things that John tells us to get a kind of a sense of the kind of love that he's talking about. Now, uh, the first thing. John talks about, or one thing that John talks about is uh, how we are to love each other. Look at chapter 3, verses 16 16 and following. This is how we're to love each other. Here's John's definition of love. This is how we know what love is. Okay, what are we talking about here? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him? How can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us love not with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This is what love looks like. This is how we are to love. It's really John's definition. This kind of love, the kind of love that looks like Jesus, is tangible, sacrificial action. Tangible, sacrificial action. Action. It's behavior. It is not a sentiment. It's not words. It's not, uh, it's not even intent. It's behavior. Selflessly devoting ourselves to pursuing each other's good at our own expense. We're going to put more flesh on this in the weeks to come, but I'll give you just a preview that love in the church, the kind of love that Jesus calls us to, is serving and preserving and persevering, and that's the kind of love that Jesus calls us to. It's not easy, but we see right here, that's the definition. Sacrificial action, tangible sacrificial action. And the second thing we we see can see in John is not just how we're supposed to love, but we also see who we're supposed to love. And John usually uses two terms in 1 John for who we're to love. One is one another, and the other is brother. One another and brother. Who are we supposed to love? One another and brother. He's talking about the interaction, the relationships in the faith family. Now you notice how many times here he uses the term brothers. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? You see those terms? You'll notice them again when you look at verse 10, John 3, 10 where it says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. 
You want to know the difference? Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Brother, key word. Notice again, further down the chapter, beginning in verse, let's see, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brother. So anyone who doesn't love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but in deed and in truth. Who are we supposed to love? We're supposed to love our brothers. Remember, this is the strongest relational language that John knows to use in his culture. This is strong group family talk. The word brothers is loaded with emotional content and with relational obligations. And I like it when the translators use the word brothers when it's there, or brothers and sisters. Some translations now use brothers and sisters, and that's, that's great. It's probably even a better way to communicate in our culture. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. If someone sees a brother and, or sister in need and doesn't respond, how does the love of God dwell in him? But I do appreciate what one translation has done. And in this case, instead of translating the word brothers, brothers, which is usually better, in this case, they translate the word brothers as fellow Christians. And it really adds a, an interesting tone to the translation. I'd like to read it for you. It's from the, uh, the Net Bible. We know that we've crossed from death, the same passage. We know that we've crossed from death to life because we love our fellow Christians. The one who doesn't love remains in death. Everyone who hates his fellow Christian is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. We've come to know love by this. Jesus laid down his life for us. Thus, we ought to lay down our lives for our fellow Christians. But whoever has the world's possessions and sees his fellow Christian in need and shuts his compassion shuts off his compassion against him. How can the love of God reside in such a person? When I read that and I see the term fellow Christian, that just brings a new kind of a tone, helps me hear that in a new way, and maybe it does for you too. And this is what we're talking about, sacrificial love for each other. Here's the thing. If we can't love each other, if we can't love our faith family, then how are we going to love the world? You say, well, the people here are hard to love. They're weird. Okay, right, I get that. And I get that. And so are you, and so am I. We're all hard to love. You know what? In some ways, I would hope that we're, we're not any harder to love than the world that we're called to love. And if we can't love our own faith family, how are we going to show love to a hurting world? God calls us to love brothers and sisters, our fellow Christians. And if you commit to this kind of love, let me show you a couple quick things that will happen. Then we're just we're, we're ready to wrap it up. A couple quick things that happen. First of all, if you will love like this, John tells us, it will prove your paternity. Look at 1 John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. God, 
You want proof of paternity? It's not found in how well you know the Bible. It's not found in, in uh, how squeaky clean your life is. You want proof of paternity, proof that you belong to God? Then you need to share that defining trait that runs in his family, sacrificial love. This word here that's translated has been born of God, it's, it's, it's a word that literally means has been fathered by. Some translations actually translate it has been fathered by. When you read it that way, everyone who loves has been fathered by God and knows God. Read on and you'll see that if you have no inclination to love your fellow brother, if you have no inclination to treat each other with love and respect, you may have question, you may have reason to question whether you even belong to God. Read 1 John. That's what he says. So it proves your paternity. It's going to be a way of demonstrating you belong to God. And the second thing it does is it's going to pave a path to your own growth and sanctification. Loving like Jesus, loving each other, it's one of the ways God wants to grow you. It's one of the ways that he will uh, refine you. When you love like this, you look more like Jesus. You know why? Because you look more like Jesus. Right? You're actually starting to look more like Jesus when you go through the process of loving in challenging times. God actually begins to shape you more and more so that you actually do look like Jesus. It's not just that your love looks like Jesus. It's that you are actually looking more like Jesus. We see that in verse 12. Uh, if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. It's part of the growth process of you becoming more like Jesus by learning to love in challenging contexts. So love like this is good for you too. It proves your paternity and it's a path to growth. But even more important to the, to the 30,000 people in our valley, it's love like this that's going to help them see that Jesus is alive and well. It's love like this that's going to help people see that Jesus actually does change lives because they knew you before and they see you now. Right, it's, it's, it's one of the ways, it's the primary way that people will see that, that Jesus is alive and well. So people's lives depend on us getting this right here at this church. People's lives depend on you and I learning to love each other through hardships, through disappointments, through times of, of, of being sinned against and sinning against each other. People are depending on us getting this right. We know each other well enough. We know each other's flaws. We know each other's problems. It's hardest to love people that you live closest to. But if we can get it right, then when people look at us, they'll see Jesus. This is how the early church got the attention of these pagan Romans and and, uh, cynical Jews by living love. And it's the way that we'll get the attention of people in this valley. And that's my prayer. That's what this series is about. It's about continuing to build a culture of committed love between us so that we can be known in this valley as a church that really loves people. We're going to build on this over the next few weeks. Every week we're going to add to this idea. This is the, by the time we're done, I hope we have a full a full picture of what it really means to carry this out in a real practical way. And here's your assignment this week. Keep praying that God will do this in you and in our church. And keep asking God for that opportunity 
to show love to someone else in this faith family. Let me ask you to take just a minute, think about uh, what God is saying to you about this, and then I want to pray for you and for me. Maybe you can see some significant gaps in your obedience in this area. This would be a good time to talk to the Lord about that and ask him to grow you beyond that. Ask him to forgive you, help you move on. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to just pray, God, show me, uh, give me a chance to show someone love in this faith family this week. Father, as we uh, look at these truths, uh, we're challenged by them. They're so uh, beautiful in theory, but they're really hard to carry out in practice. It's hard to carry this out in action. And we know that's really the only measure of our love for each other, because that's the measure of your love for us. You did something about it, and we know that you want us to do something about it. I want to pray, Father, that you will show us how to put action to our aspirations that you will show us how to really love each other. And my desire is that you will build in this faith family an increasing culture of deep, sacrificial, committed love for one another in a way that would be so compelling, in a way that people can see Jesus when they see us love each other, in a way that, like, like John told us, that that will show you living in us. All we can do is ask you to do this and then submit ourselves to that. I pray that you'll help each of us submit to the the way of loving that you've called us to and ask that you'll do this in our faith family. We pray it through Jesus. Amen.